Hello and welcome to the Rock and Roll Politics podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are. And you know what I'm going to say. We have got a lot to cram in in our time together. I'm recording in a somewhat unusual space. Um, I've just left the conference arena uh, in Liverpool and to get some fresh air. You don't get much fresh air at party conferences. Uh, one of the many reasons why the metaphor of being in a bubble has a kind of potency. Um, but I'm now, God, blissfully overlooking the uh, River Mersey. Um, and it's, it, is a, it is a glorious backdrop to an otherwise cocooned conference centre. Uh, if it's okay with all of you, a uh, couple of notices and then uh, a few reflections on me uh, uh, as to this pre-election conference and we'll have to get together again later on in the week for a final kind of reflection on that and hopefully we'll have time for your questions today uh, if not today when we have the second hit it all kind of depends on moving I'm, I'm walking around you know do you remember when I was on my never-ending live show tour I had to record this podcast at places like Belfast airport and all kinds of places um, well, I'm still on that never-ending tour, but uh, at a party conference. Talking of the never-ending tour, King's Place, live on Monday, October the 23rd. Do come and join us to really delve deep, make sense of it all, have some fun, a few glasses of wine afterwards, and jawing for some of you, not me. Um, tickets will be available at the King's Place website, and the link will be on the blurb for this podcast. And for those of you who kindly subscribe to patreon the bonus podcast will be appearing uh towards the end of the week after the labor conference and uh the theme at the moment is uh rivalries in politics uh we went back some way for the last episode gladstone and disraeli and i thought because it's kind of labor conference time and all the rest of it uh i'll explore the relationship on the rivalry it's almost the wrong word but not quite between Dennis Healy and Tony Benn. Uh, their battle in 1981 for the deputy leadership contest was a form of rivalry, and their relationship was it was interesting and, and complex. Anyway, that will be the bonus podcast uh, for Patreon subscribers uh, this month, kind of moving a century ahead of ourselves after last last month's one. Um, what else? I'm sure there's other stuff I was meant to say. Oh yeah, my book uh, on turning points in modern Britain is out and about now. Great present for yourselves, for those you love, those who you hate, who might not like it, you can send it to them as well. But now, the Labour uh, Conference. Obviously, it has become overshadowed by the dark, dark uh, events in Israel and Gaza. Um, I'm not going to comment on those because many more expert voices are available around the clock and some of you will be experts too. Um, I'm only going to comment on it in the context of uh, this conference because in a way it's a real example uh, and by the way I'm not claiming this is remotely significant compared with the horrors of what's going on and the global implications you know, the connections are deeply worrying uh, the link with Iran Iran's relationship with Putin and Russia um, 
and 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 just the inability of um, uh, any agency to stabilize that region is, uh, is wholly frightening and, and and massively significant. But I'm in Liverpool, so only feel qualified to make the following uh, judgment: that uh, what Starmer and the Shadow Cabinet are having to learn this week is that events can overwhelm planning and I can't tell you how obsessively hard working they have all been in preparing for this conference. Um, it was seen as and understandably seen as the moment when they can as individuals and collectively project an alternative government in a pre-election conference uh, to a wider electorate, because all the journalists gathered here follow them day in, day out anyway, although the messaging to the media is crucial at party conferences because the media mediates. Very few watch these things in the roar around the clock. Um, so all this preparation is on, um, and now um, this huge, dark news story uh, overwhelms them and incidentally also in a minor way becomes a test for them um, you can uh, feel it here that they thought the test would be could they pull off the very challenging task of being reassuring and exciting that was going to be the task now uh, a new task has arisen from the horrors of uh, the weekend and beyond uh, which is uh, can they stick together to align uh, about uh, what is happening? Um, and that line will basically be uh, there cannot be a half a millimetre difference between what Sunak is saying, what Starmer is saying, what the entire Labour Party is saying uh, in relation to that. Um, so that too at a party conference where there are fringe meetings all over the place, which had been wholly uh, kind of controlled. Uh, now, media people will be on the lookout for those who uh, go, to use that old dated phrase, off message. So a new test emerges for the week. Um, beyond that, uh, here are my observations uh, so far. Um, one is the degree to which this does have parallels with Labour's pre-election conference in 19... 96. It's, it's interesting party conferences. They are worth coming to in the sense that when you walk in, you have a feel almost immediately. Um, so here you have a sense of quite a lot of controlled optimism. Uh, and, and those two words matter. Uh, there is absolutely that they lose too often for there to be um, overexcitement, premature overexcitement. Um, but there is optimism. How can there not be when you're 20 points ahead in the polls and have just won the Rutherglen uh, by-election by a bigger margin, genuinely bigger margin than they dared to hope for? Um, and so it is a very upbeat mood, as it was in 1996, but very controlled, as it was again in 1996. It's a myth that there was, uh, in the leadership, a 
pervasive sense that they had done it. Indeed, with Blair himself, he never felt it. One of the reasons why he continued obsessively to work with Paddy Ashdown, the leader of the Lib Dems then, was because he still assumed that, you know, it could well be a hung parliament in the 97 election um, and that he would need to form a relationship with Ashdown and the Liberal Democrats in government. Um, He did not anticipate, dare to contemplate the landslide that actually happened in 1997. And so uh, it is similar in that respect here as well. They have lost too many times to get too overexcited in a way uh, that lacks control. And the other parallel which you will have read about is it is packed. Um, You know, party conferences have changed their function. Um, There will be more business leaders and political journalists here, I suspect, than party members um, and even MPs. Um, But that was the case in 1996 too, where businesses flocked to Labour conferences, were happy to pay vast sums to put their stands up um, and and all the rest of it. Uh, That is the same here again. There is an assumption that this is going to be the governing party in a year or so's time. Uh, Exactly the same as uh, the 96 Labour conference, where you could sort of feel power transferring. There had been then a lacklustre Conservative conference, not as shambolic as Manchester last week by any stretch of the imagination. That would take quite a lot to compete with last week. But it was very interesting. I went to the pre-97 Tory conference as well, and cabinet ministers, even the Chancellor Ken Clark, were kind of wandering around, and there weren't great entourages around them. Um, and then you went to the Labour conference in '96, and kind of you couldn't get close to Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, and one or two of the other shadow cabinet. Their entourages protecting them from the huge, intense interest because they realised power was shifting. And, and that is the same now. I'm not predicting there's going to be a landslide, but the mood is is very similar. What is also similar, of course, and we've discussed this and explored this many times uh, on the uh, uh, podcast, is um, the degree to which New Labour incrementalism is also being uh, followed here. Um, once you have decided uh, that you cannot spend a halfpenny, which hasn't been accounted for. Um, you are deeply constrained about how far you can say anything, frankly. Because when you look at it, when, when you look at what's happened, say, with the government since the summer recess, you know, the school buildings crumbling, right, we're going to act, we'll spend the money. No, it won't be from existing budgets. We'll find the money from somewhere else. A, 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 a big spending commitment. In the pre-election tax and spend debate, which bears very little connection with reality, uh, spending pledges from Labour tend to be seen as a threat rather than a source of hope. That was the lesson Blair and Brown drew after the 1992 election defeat, and it is the one that Starmer and Reeves have decided to learn again after December 2019. Now, this is a big call to make. It seems like a sort of safe call to make, but it's not as uh, straightforward as that. 
For example, I speak to many people here who think that uh, some form of wealth tax, I don't like the term wealth tax because it undermines the whole argument for taxation in that it makes taxation seem almost like a punishment for accumulating wealth. But a tax on the wealthy has become, uh, quite a few calculate, far more electorally feasible, certainly post the 2008 crash. Uh, and that would give space for more credible claims about transforming the NHS, transforming education, and so on, rather than, in, in a way that's becoming almost comical, this non-DOM tax uh, paid for everything, you know, revolutionary recruitment in the NHS, schools, uh, dentistry, and all these things. Um, uh, if they had dared to go a bit further on tax, the reason they don't is because they assume it will be reported as a tax bombshell, a tax on aspiration, and have opted for the Blair Brown route of caution. But what is interesting is that although the five pledges that New Labour put on that famous pledge card in 97 were puny and tiny and incremental, you know, we will uh, reduce waiting lists for uh, people at a hospital in Edgware for six months. It was kind of small-scale stuff. And incidentally, uh, what they did claim they were going to do for the NHS, they said they would pay for out of efficiency savings, which is always another one of these cop-outs. Um, uh, you can find efficiency savings in government, but um, not always, actually. You, you look at it and find any change will be even more expensive. That doesn't mean there aren't huge scope for efficiency savings in the public sector. There are. Um, but that's how they said they would pay for their NHS. Uh, now it's the non-DOM thing. But as well as the incrementalism, because Blair followed Kinnock and Smith, there were underneath those incremental policies quite a lot of uh, radical policies in place already, which pointed to quite significant change. Um, the minimum wage as a principle had already been established then. And we forget now because the Tories, when Michael Portillo became shadow chancellor, said they would now support the minimum wage. It was passionately opposed by the Conservatives. Um, they were going to join the social chapter as part of a much more pro-European governing party. Both big changes, the practical changes of being in the social chapter and symbolising a pro-European approach, which uh, was completely at odds with what the Tory government appeared to be doing. Uh, well, they couldn't decide because they were completely split on Europe. There was already, when Blair came in, a commitment to a referendum on electoral reform. Now, that referendum was never held, but it pointed to or implied the potential for sweeping change, because if you have electoral reform, all kinds of things change as a result. Now, these were some examples of policies already there before the new Labour era. And there's a very interesting piece by David Blunkett, which no one would have read. It was in the, the sort of, or very few would have read. It's in the online kind of independent. But he gave uh, an example of how Labour could be more daring now, which I agree with. Um, he gave the example of the privatised water 
companies. Now, Labour's policy is interesting. It's uh, the current policy, uh, which is very incremental. Which they said they will uh, uh, abolish the bonuses of the uh, top people at these private water companies if they don't deal with this appalling uh, situation of sewage in rivers and seas um, uh, more robustly and effectively. Now, that will do nothing. Um, you know, that, that won't make them decide to do more. Um, but it's a symbol, um, you know, that it doesn't cost Labour any money to say that. Uh, it doesn't challenge the structure for them to say that because it implies if you're tougher on bonuses, it can all be sorted, which it can't. Now, Blunkett gave an example of where they should be much more daring and buy a big public, he didn't argue for full-scale public ownership, but a uh, a, a, a public element to the ownership um, and he gave this as an example of something that would actually be bold and popular uh, and I think he's right because the current structure is the issue the way the water companies uh, were privatized in the late 80s is really worth looking at again the period between 1987, when uh, Margaret Thatcher won another landslide, her final and third election victory, and her fall in 1990, was one of incredible, intense, right-wing radical reforms. A lot of them led by her environment secretary, Nicholas Ridley. Uh, big changes in housing, further changes after the sale of council homes, nothing about building houses at all, all about changing of ownership. Changing of ownership was the theme of her final term. And the privatisation rush through of water was a disaster. It basically gave these great assets uh, privatised monopolies, which have been run worse than the public ones were. And I think in the horrors of this kind of vivid metaphor almost of the sewage in the seas and the rivers, there is space for Labour to have an argument of what went wrong and what they could do. Now, of course, again, it implies spending money, but they could do it in a way that says, look, because it was so casually and inefficiently done and speedily done by uh, the Conservatives, um, we can't rush at this. But we are aware that ownership is an issue here and we're going to address it um, without pledging to spend billions on day one, which of course is uh, becomes impossible. Uh, anyway, and that was from Blunkett uh, in The uh, Independent, and he's sometimes seen wrongly actually as quite a sort of conservative new Labour figure. Um, but he was from that cautious new Labour era um, and recommending a degree to which they can be bolder in framing arguments about policy and the policies that arise from them and I think he's right uh, but such is the intensity of the anti-conservative mood uh, in the country which has now been around for a year it began after the Liz Truss era um, to some extent, what they say now, although they worry about every word, which is why they've spent so long preparing for this conference, but it will influence what happens in government. The space they have to act will be not wholly, but partly dependent on what they say and decide to do now. 
So, yeah, one final thought is this, that uh, Keir Starmer is in complete control of this party. And whether you agree with the way he has used that control or not, it is a remarkable achievement. Um, here is someone who can run things and say you can, and, and I do some say disagree with some of the things he has decided to do with this party, but the fact that he can decide to do what he wants to do with this party after, what is it, four years as a leader is incredible. And I know that's the view, and you can feel it here uh, in the conference, um, what he has and his team have decided uh, they want to happen is going to happen this week. Every single element of it, they will prevail. And the Shadow Cabinet team dance to those tunes. It is an astonishing achievement. I know Neil Kinnock, who follows everything incredibly closely and with great insight and perception, and has criticisms uh, privately of some of Keir Starmer's moves. Um, but on this, I think he's in awe as someone who managed to turn Labour around after the slaughter of 1983. And it was harder then for all sorts of reasons, but uh, it was agonising and all done on a public stage with blazing internal uh, rows. Um, and, and, and Starmer has done it very quickly. It shows the weakness of the so-called hard left that he was able to sort of swap them to one side when they were so dominant um, and then he's taken control of the machinery of a party that can be very difficult to lead and the control is greater than new labor for good and bad um, the current leadership will have a much greater sense of the new parliamentary party than uh, Blair had when he won in 97 famously Peter Manderson said when all these MPs appeared who are these people um, because uh, they were concerned about who they were. They hadn't paid much interest. As you all know, the leader's office here has paid obsessive interest as to who gets selected. Um, and so they will have a much greater sense of the parliamentary party when it comes to governing. And a party that, you know, I followed for a long time and often said is unleadable. And I've spoken to Neil Kinnock about the challenges he faced in the 80s to get this party to focus on the wider electorate in a way that made victory at least possible and 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 Starmer has has got the levers and I think he will get the levers of Whitehall as well I'm told that Sue Gray quite a lot of the shadow cabinet were very skeptical when they heard she was going to be appointed um uh, but I now think you know she she is grabbing the levers to, to, to a greater degree, I think, than some in Keir Starmer's office realised she would do so. But she understands Whitehall. And Starmer has run a public office as Director of Public Prosecutions. He has now managed a Labour Party, which is difficult to manage. It seems to me, although I disagree with some of the ways he has used that authority, uh, to be both remarkable and uh, uh, a wholly positive that he knows how to run things because frankly a lot of people end up in number 10 with not much experience of how to run anything with all kinds of consequences so look these are some early thoughts so what I'm going to do if it's okay with all of you I'm going to pause 
go and listen to the Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, pop back, and then, uh, as I say, we will get together again uh, later on in the week. See you in a second. So there we are, just uh, left uh, the Rachel Reeves speech and she pulled it off. The uh, art of reassuring and exciting simultaneously. Uh, she did, I think, brilliantly and authoritatively and yet in a way that um, was relaxed. She's quite a good speaker um, and it's a, such a tough job, Shadow Chancellor. Uh, in some ways, she seems more at ease with the role than um, Gordon Brown, who is unquestionably her kind of model hero, someone who she speaks to. Um, Gordon Brown showed more that he felt the burden of being responsible for economic policy making for a Labour Party that lost elections because of its economic policies. But he was the pioneer of this sort of pre-election mix of policies to excite. He would always list those, including, of course, for him, uh, the tax on privatised utilities. We now have the one-off tax on energy companies, the windfall tax. He would highlight things like the minimum wage and other measures that would be coming in with a Labour government uh, Rachel Reeves did the equivalent and get Britain building again and this focus on growth is clearly where Labour can you hear the uh, seagulls above uh, in Liverpool on the River Mersey um, anyway is clearly the way they are going to address the issue of how you revive public services that are in a worse state they were in a dire state by 97 uh, it shouldn't be forgotten, but they're in a worse state now. And although the means towards that growth are still not fully fleshed out, um, you, they've got enough policies, I think, to indicate a determination to get building in different ways, infrastructure projects, um, uh, and so on, um, to get them through the election. Uh, credibly. Now, in power, and as I said earlier, most here assume uh, they will be in power by around this time next year, the challenges will be of a different order again. The electoral mountain is huge, but so are the uh, challenges of government. And of course, Gordon Brown had planned beforehand. I mean, he and Ed Balls used to go off and look at areas where they could raise money stealthily. He became, in a sort of odd contradiction in terms, famous for being stealthy in his tax rises. Um, and in the end, you can't pull that off for very long. But they did, and of course, they had to do other things. They had to uh, sell gold. And people say, oh, isn't that outrageous? He sold gold when it was at a low value. He had no choice. They needed money. They had to do the private finance initiative, not because they thought it was the most efficient way of raising money, but because uh, they had ruled out most tax rises. Now, you know, Rachel Reeves will be doing the same. There will be areas where she will have identified revenue-raising possibilities, I suspect, which will become clearer with the first budget. Um, whether it is enough, 
given the scale of the task, um, basically to, as she said at the climactic end of her powerful speech, you know, to sort of rebuild Britain. Uh, it's going to take resources and new ways of doing things. And those fiscal rules, which I think she has every intention of keeping to and not breaking, are tough. Uh, remember, current spending, uh, any additional uh, spending will not come about through borrowing. So how are they going to find the money for all the sort of pay demands that won't have been resolved by then, if they do choose to resolve them by putting in more money, etc., etc.? So it's going to be tough, and as there's a thorny road ahead, and it could go in many different ways, but... The relationship between Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer is in some ways healthier than the one between Blair and Brown. I mean, there were, the Blair-Brown thing was titanic because they had been together since 1983 and worked together and, and saw things to some extent in a similar way by 97, although politically they were in different places or ideologically they were. Brown was always to the left of Blair, and then Blair in power moved, I think, further to the right um but uh the, the reeves starmer although formed far more recently uh is healthy in different ways uh, starmer respects uh reeves judgment and often if not always bows to it um there's no sort of paranoia that she should have got the leadership rather than him and all this kind of thing um so anyway an interesting dynamic again politics is always different it's never the same but you can't help but reference back to the last period when uh, Labour was on the edge of uh, power and as we've discussed many times in this podcast um, we're in a wholly new era now where voters have not uh, only more receptive to radical ideas but have been the agent of those ideas Brexit, the rise, it seems now to be over, but the rise of uh, the SNP and the, the, the cause of independence, um, I mean, these are big radical ideas. I think a lot of it goes back to that 2008 financial crash. Uh, anyway, let's uh, have a few of your uh, questions, if that's okay with you. And because we're gathering again later on in the week, uh, post the Starmer speech. I mean, you might be listening to this post the Starmer speech, but um, nothing uh, nothing dates with this podcast. Uh, we are all making observations together that have a timeless quality. Uh, but let's get together, post the Starmer speech, post the end of this conference uh, for uh, more reflections and more of your questions. But I'll do a few... your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. Hey.
Helen the Baker uh, has written, saying uh, that uh, I attended many Labour Party conferences in the 90s and understand the pull that these events have had historically, but I do wonder now whether they serve any useful purpose at all nowadays, given social media coverage and the um, web and uh, to any of the parties. The scheduling disrupts parliamentary business for a month. This means that the scant policies announced at conference by the governing party cannot be an announced and scrutinised in Parliament, such as the incompetent management of the HS2 project. Yeah, these are all uh, good points, and I've, I've often wondered whether there's any purpose of these conferences, and to some extent, but only to some extent, uh, my view has been confirmed by coming to Liverpool, where, as I say, most people here are businesses, journalists, uh, and, and so on. However, I do think they serve one purpose. It's a bit like Prime Minister's questions, in that uh, they force a party leadership and uh, a front bench to focus on what they want to convey and what they stand for and the policies that arise from them. Um, and, and that is its purpose, really. Uh, I mean, if businesses think they're going to get anything from shadow cabinet members more than about a minute uh, when they're rushed off their feet, etc., all of that is uh, a part of the madness of party conferences. But Rachel Reeves would have had to have spent a lot of time thinking carefully what she wanted to say, how she wanted to say it, and it does tell us a bit about her, uh, the pitch for the election, and to some extent, again, only to some extent, beyond. Similar with the Starmer speech, uh, and so on. And, and last week in Manchester, the chaos told us quite a lot about the current state of the Tory party, even though quite a lot of the Tory party wasn't even there. Um, so they do have a purpose, though I think it's limited. I think it has changed. Um, from the great party conferences of decades ago. But I, I wouldn't dump them quite yet. I think just the need for their parties to get their act together, sometimes their failure to do so, sometimes their success in doing so, tell us uh, quite a lot. Uh, thank you, Helen. Uh, Fraser Odes uh, uh, has got some more questions about... By the way, I'm, I'm focusing more on Labour questions uh, because obviously it's the Labour Conference week. Uh, I too have an Ed-Ed relationship question. There was a question last week about the relationship between Ed Miliband and Ed Balls, which is a really interesting one. Um, it's been bugging me. He says, in 2010, Ed Balls was the obvious choice as Shadow Chancellor. However, at first Ed Miliband appointed Alan Johnson. Uh, this made me think that Ed Miliband didn't want Ed Balls in that role. Yet he did appoint Ed Balls when Alan Johnson resigned. Uh, why did he do so? And why did he not want him right away as his shadow chancellor? Well, the answer, Fraser, is interesting. He didn't want Ed Balls as his sh shadow chancellor. He made him shadow home secretary. Um, and Balls accepted that with good grace. And he threw himself briefly into the role of shadow home secretary as he threw himself into every role uh, when he was active in politics. Uh, there were huge tensions between them in the Treasury, um, and those tensions obviously intensified with the leadership contest. And Ed Miliband, in some ways, was quite intimidated by Ed Balls, and he wanted 
space in terms of economic policy without him in it. And that's why he put the more amenable Alan Johnson in the role. Uh, and uh, in, in some ways it was an interesting appointment because Alan Johnson is someone who could have made economic policy for Labour accessible and uh, credible. But he was never at ease in the role, never pretended he was at ease in the role. And when he stood down, he put in Ed Balls with a degree of wariness, but he was always the obvious choice. Ed Balls did have a capacity of combining uh, intense knowledge about economic policy making with the political implications of uh, economic policy making. But they didn't get on. There were big tensions between them. I remember one of Ed Miliband's advisors uh, telling me that whenever Ed Miliband had a meeting with Ed Balls, he almost had to get psyched up for it. He was a bit frightened of it and uh, what might follow. And Ed Balls found it frustrating, I think, uh, with Ed Miliband as leader. And, and the dynamic was nowhere near as uh, healthy as it is between Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer. But it was uh, a, an interesting relationship because it went back so far. The two of them have worked for Gordon Brown uh, for years and were united in their hunger for Gordon Brown to take over from Tony Blair as soon as possible. Um, and so they had a lot in common, but it was a relationship which didn't really work in that final phase. Thank you for that. Uh, Rob Evans, uh, really enjoyed getting into your podcast over the last few months. I'm in Sydney, but originally from the UK. We've got a lot of questions from Australia this week. I wonder how much UK Labour are in contact with their Aussie counterparts. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, of course, Labour won in Australia. Uh, and the answer is, Rob, a lot. Um, because Labour loses most elections in the UK, they're obsessed with the winners and where the winners are. And uh, one of the places where Labour won is Australia. Uh, so there is quite a lot of contact between the Australian Labour Party and Keir Starmer's Labour. Uh, Bridget Phillipson went out there to look at education policy, which played a big part in the Australian election. Uh, Starmer's leadership team, Rachel Reeves, have been more cautious than what they've given uh, Bridget Phillipson the space to say about education, uh, but that it's an example of where uh, Labour's win there has had an impact on thinking here. So there's quite a lot, uh, Rob. There is in Germany as well, where the S. BD are back in power, though, in the context, of course, of coalition government. Um, yeah, Starmer likes hanging out with the winners because he is so utterly determined to win. And that's part of his reason for reconnecting with Blair and the Blairites who have had such a big uh, role in his leadership in recent uh, months, although now it's quite interesting that uh, Sue Gray is uh, chief of staff of this office and um, is getting quite a grip, I'm told, of the uh, office in various ways. Uh, I think the last one for today, if that's okay, Mark Colling in North uh, Berwick says that um, I wondered about your current thoughts on the likely timing of the next general election. The media seem to be saying that the current party conferences are the last before the election. Uh, and you seem to say the same. Do you really think so? You've indicated before that the incumbent government will hang on as long as possible, um, in which case, the, yeah, they could go on until not this January, the one after. Well, Mark, um, here's the thing. There's a lot of talk here in Liverpool about a May election. 
uh, and obviously Labour have got to prepare for the possibility of a May election. But I think it is the last party conference season because Sunak would just convey total despairing panic if he carries on till the last possible moment and has a winter election uh, next uh, year or in January 25. So I still think unless the polls really narrow between now and May, it will be an October election and this will be the last set of party conferences of this parliament. And what a parliament it's been. Uh, oh, yeah, my God. Anyway, look, if it's OK, there's tons of brilliant questions to come. Uh, there will be more space to do that uh, when we gather together post-Starmer, post this party conference uh, season. And then, as I say, on October the 23rd at King's Place Live, we can really make sense of it all. And by then, we'll have had the two by-elections uh, by in Midbeds and Tamworth, which are really, really interesting and significant as well in very different ways from Rother Glen, uh, which was a, a, a big victory for Labour, for Scottish Labour, uh, back in business after the trauma of uh, recent years. It's only got what well, was now got two MPs of Westminster, and there were many jokes about representation of Scottish Labour MPs doubling as a result of the Rother Glen by-election. Uh, but mid-beds with the uh, uh, Labour and the Lib Dems theoretically battling it out to beat the Tories, and then Tamworth with a very, very big Tory majority. What's going to happen? Anyway, that's for King's Place uh, on October the 23rd. Uh, please leave a review if you can, only if you love it or like it. Um, and yeah, let's get together later on in the week with more of your questions. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye.